Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. It's good to be back. Uh, my family and I were out of town visiting visiting family in Tennessee last week, so we certainly missed worshiping with y'all, but it's good to be back uh, this week. Um, several announcements as we get started this morning. Um, I had to make a brief shift in our, in our teacher uh, kid rotation this morning, so preschoolers are in here right now, um, and after the children's moment, we'll dismiss older kids and preschoolers together, okay? The uh, preschoolers will meet Miss Sarah back at the door right there where Mr. Allen, Mr. Allen's standing right there. Say hi, wave. Okay, yep. <laughs> um, they'll meet back there, okay, after the children's moment, and all the older kids who are going to go uh, with Miss Kelly, y'all will meet back there at the main door, okay? So after the children's moment, we'll do a break right there, and then all the children will walk over together, okay? Just a little bit of a shift uh, this morning, but I think we can make that happen. All right. I uh, also want to thank the Birchfields for the donation for the, uh, uh, for the blinds. Got those up and in place, uh, so thank you guys and your family for that. So. Sarah's mother for that, yes. Yeah, Birchfield family at large, but particularly uh, Sarah's mother for donating those. So uh, thank you for getting those up, and thank you for Alan for installing them. Um, all right, uh, let's see. Also, um, so last week or two weeks ago, we finished our children's study in Big Truths for Big Hearts, right? Big ideas about who God is and who we are made in his image. Kind of a systematic theology for children. We finished that two weeks ago. So this week, we're going to start a new study um, that's going to go for about 16 weeks. It's going to be more of a biblical study. How do you tell the whole story of the Bible in just a few verses um, and the, the importance of that? You know, narrative is big right now in our culture, being a, you know, people's stories, individual stories, and it's good, it's important for children to know, what is the whole Bible about? How does the Bible tell one big story about the glory of God, and how do we fit in it? So we're going to be starting that study today. Um, we're going to be going through this book called The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses by Chris Bruno. Okay, short book, uh, very, very basic in its concept. It's actually written for adults, um, but it's, again, it's very, very basic. So we want to help model and, and, and help uh, provide this for kids, help model for parents. How do you take biblical truths and, tr- and teach them to young children, even when from things that aren't really necessarily written for children? So we're going to go through this in uh, 16 weeks. It'll take us all the way through uh, the end of January. We'll be doing this during our children's moment. And one of the things we want is f- to encourage the children to memorize each verse each week. So help them with scripture memory. Um, I thought about trying to tackle also memorizing the books of the Bible, and I think that's going to be just a little bit too much. So we may save that for the, the next go-around. Um, so, but that'll be the plan. Um, and in an effort to really to, to help out with this, um, a dozen of these books have been donated to the church free and are available for you. So if you would like a copy of this, there's a dozen of them sitting over there um, that you are welcome to pick up, read through. Uh, we'd love for families to read through you know, each chapter and then discuss the concepts with your children throughout the week. There's a lot that's in there. I mean, you're covering the whole Bible in, you know, in 16 weeks with one verse. So each week there's a lot that can be discussed. Um, so would really love you know, for, for families, y'all, to take one of these. Um, e- again, each chapter, maybe take you 10 minutes to read through it, um, and then talk about it you know, with your children throughout the, the week. Again, just trying to provide that opportunity for families to disciple their children. Okay? So that'll be the, you know, the new direction that, uh, that we're moving with our kids and our children's moment, uh, again, probably through the end of January. That'll be the plan there. 
All right, uh, several things that are on the calendar uh, this week. Uh, baby shower for the Wilsons is this, uh, this afternoon, 4 p.m. It's going to be at Century Park um, and uh, Pavilions 4 and 5, I believe. Pretty easy to find it, I know. So, but that'll be uh, this, this afternoon, 4 p.m. Desserts will be provided for the church or uh, uh, from the church. So come enjoy you know, blessing the Wilsons there as they're expecting their baby. Um, and if you're not able to make it but you have gifts, you're welcome to leave them here and we'll make sure that they get to, get to the Wilsons as well. All right, so that's this afternoon, 4 p.m. Um, we will continue to have the Young Girls Bible Study, which will meet this evening or this afternoon at 4.30. So we'll also have that as well here at the church building. And help me out, Sarah, y'all are in chapter 5? Friends. 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 It's the chapter on friends. Yep, chapter on friends. Uh, all right, so uh, young ladies, y'all meet 4.30 to 5.30 here at the church this evening, okay? Um, let's see. Uh, We'll have, um, oh, that's old. Oh, my phone didn't update. Okay. Um, Fall Festival is uh, going to be uh, October the 30th. That's going to be at the Groves House. That will be 3 to 6.30 p.m. Um, and I think we still have sign-up sheets for games uh, and things on, uh, on Discord. Um, if you want more information about that, see Kelly or Caroline Grove. All right. Uh, we're going to have a second uh, youth brainstorming meeting. If you missed that first one, we're going to have a second one coming up uh, mid-November, so stay tuned for that. Um, we've got a conversation going on, uh, on Discord just about some of those details, so if you want to be clued into that, uh, um, uh, check that out on, uh, on Discord. Okay, uh, and then first Sunday in uh, December, we're going to have a team leaders meeting, so team leaders mark your calendar for that. Okay, uh, Alan, did I miss anything? Okay, my phone didn't completely update this morning, so I thought I'd miss something. All right, our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 104, a wonderful psalm. It's about the glory of God reflected in creation. And in verse 13, the psalmist writes that he waters, speaking of God, he waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. In, a, in the fall season when leaves are starting to turn and, Lord, our eyes are turned towards the beauty and the wonder of creation as one season folds into another. And Father, from the psalm, we're reminded that the whole earth is satisfied with your provision. Lord, all that you provide for the earth and all the goodness that's therein, it's found because you are good because you provide for it, Father. So may we sing praises, not only because the creation reflects your glory, but Father, as us who are made in your image, broken through sin, but redeemed through the shed blood of Jesus, made new, not perfect, but made new, being made and formed in the likeness of Christ day by day, seeking that, Father, we take joy in the works of your hand as you fashion us more like Jesus. And so we sing praises to you this morning. We lift our voices on high that you might be exalted, you might receive the glory. So Father, would you be pleased to be in our midst as we worship you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We introduced you to you a new song last week. We're going to play that again. So hopefully uh, 
you'll, uh, you'll start catching on to that pretty quickly. So it's called Praise the Lord. Let's stand together and sing. You made the starry host. You trace the mountain peaks. You paint the evening skies with wonder. The earth, it is your throne. From desert to the sea, all nature testifies your splendor. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Sing His greatness, all creation. Praise the Lord. east to west let everything that has breath praise the Lord you reached into the dust in love your spirit breathed you formed us in your very likeness to know your wondrous works to tell your mighty to join the everlasting for us. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Sing His greatness, all creation. Praise the Lord, raise your voice. You heights in all you depths, from furthest east to west. Let everything that has breath
If you want to come up, you'll join Pastor Austin. All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. It's good to see you guys. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the announcements, two weeks ago, we finally finished up the book, Big Truths for Big Hearts. Okay, we got all the way through it. So we're going to start a new study this morning, okay? And this study is going to take us through the whole Bible. Does anybody know how many books are in the Bible? Like a billion. It kind of feels like it because it's a thick book, right? 66 books, okay? Did you know that the Bible tells one big story? It's a collection of many little stories, right? Like creation, David and Goliath, Noah, right? Jesus, life, death, burial, and resurrection. What? Matthew, okay, yep, Matthew, that's one book in the Bible, okay, so there's a lot of small stories in it that tell one big story, okay, one big story about God, okay, and all of creation and all that God is doing throughout history, rolling up into the praise of his name, it's all about God's glory through his creation and what he's doing, okay, so we're going to take about 16 weeks, okay, it's going to take us through January, Okay, and each week we're going to look at one verse, okay? Some of them may have two verses in there. I know that cheats a little bit, okay? But we're going to look at one verse each week that tells a part of this story. So we're going to, at the end of this, you guys will be able to, if somebody says, what is the Bible about? 
you'll say, well, let me take you through 16 verses and I'll tell you. Because each week we're going to memorize that one verse. Okay? Now, let me see. Now, we're not going to do this this morning. How many of you guys know and could sing from heart? How many of you could sing Happy Birthday? Sing the song Happy Birthday. Okay? Don't know. We're not going to do it. Okay? I'll get you up here and have you recite what you've memorized. Nah. <laughs> if you need help with memory, memorizing scripture, see Miss Emma. She knows a lot about that. Okay. All right. If you can sing happy birthday, okay, if you've memorized it, okay, so if you've memorized the song like happy birthday or twinkle, twinkle, little star, some of those things, you can memorize verses in scripture. Okay. So we're going to, they are easy. They are easy. And memorizing scripture is not that hard. It just takes a little time. Okay. And get in the habit of it. Okay. So our first verse Okay, that we're going to look at this morning, it comes from book of Genesis, Genesis 1.31. Okay, I'm going to read it, and then I want you to recite, recite it after me, okay? So just listen to it the first time. All right, Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. Oh, excuse me, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, so let's do it again. I want you to recite it after me, okay? And God saw everything that he had made... Okay, you have to speak up a little bit more, okay? And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and this, that was the sixth day. Okay, Genesis 1.31. Okay, but that's important because then you know where to find it, okay? It's important to know the reference so you know where to find it. Okay, so I want to challenge you guys to go home, let your parents help you this week. I want you to work on memorizing that because next week I'm going to ask you and see if you, can, if you can memorize it, if you can say it. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about this verse. Why is this important? Okay, so we get Genesis uh, 131. We're already six days into creation. Now, God created the, the world in how many days? Ten? Six days, and on the seventh day, he did what? Made human. That was earlier. He rested. Right, no, he didn't slip. <laughs> All right, so six days he created the earth and then in the world, and then on the seventh day he rested, okay? So we see a lot about God in this, okay? How did God create the world? Did he pull a little bit of this, like a little bit of ingredients from here and a little bit of that from here? No, what did he do? That's right, he just spoke. So one of the things this verse tells us about God is the ease with which he created things. Okay, listen up, listen up, okay? All right? Okay, now I'm not going to go through the whole creation story. All right, here's the creation story, very simply, okay? God, no, no, I'm going to summarize it. Okay, here it is. Okay, God made everything. Okay, that's the creation story. God made everything, and he made everything, and it was good. Okay, that's, that's the key point of the creation story. God made everything, and everything he made was good. All right, but look how he made stuff. He spoke, Right? How many of you guys could say chair and a chair would appear right there? Ah. Nobody. Nobody. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's cute. It was already there. Okay, listen, listen, listen. Okay, listen. But think about it. Think about it. Think about God. Think about the power that God has just to speak. Right? He can speak something and it comes into existence. Right? That's phenomenal. That's crazy. Right? And so the whole point, right, in, in, this, in this, listen up, listen up, guys. Okay? is that God just speaks all things into existence. The birds, the fish, the trees, 
the rivers, the galaxies, the stars. He speaks and these things come into existence. But listen, not only does he speak and he easily creates everything, but he declares that it's good. He says it's very good. You know, God didn't just stand up in heaven one day and and say, you know what, I have an announcement to make. I'm going to make stuff. Tomorrow, 10 a.m., be here. I'm going to make stuff. And and you can hear the angels whisper, oh, wow, God's going to make stuff. What what stuff? I don't know, but God's going to make it, so we better be there. Right? That didn't happen. Okay? He just spoke. That's right. Before the heavenly hosts were made, before the angels were made. And we're not told about when and how that happened. But in the beginning, there was nothing. There was only God, and God spoke, and everything came into existence, and everything was good, right? So God didn't need to take what he made to someone else and say, hey, is this good? No, he had the authority to declare it on its own, right? When you make something like an art class or something, or you make a craft, and you show it to someone, you want them, you want their, well, what's called affirmation, right? Is this good? Is this good, right? They said, yes, yes, that's good, and you're encouraged, because it's good. Now, how many of you have ever made something on your own and you're just like, you got frustrated. It didn't turn out the way you wanted to. Anybody ever made something like that? I've done that before. I work hard on something. I'm like, ah, I'm just really frustrated. This, this isn't what I wanted, right? But God doesn't, he doesn't do that. When God makes something, right? Yeah. With Legos, with things, with pancakes. Okay. Right. But when God, listen, listen, but when God made everything, he said, it's very good. Think about that. All the things that God made, including humans, they worked the way God intended them to, right? They were doing all the things they were supposed to. Trees were growing upright. Fish were swimming in the right direction, right? Humans, people were relating to one another the way they were supposed to, okay? The mountains were doing what they were supposed to. The rivers were doing what they're, and God said, that's, that's, that's perfect. That's, the, that's very good. That's exactly what I want them to do. Okay, so this is really important for us, okay, that God, listen, God had the authority and the power to make everything, okay, and to look at his creation and say it's good. So God made a kingdom, and he's the king over it. That's what I want you to take away from this this morning. In the creation, what happened in the creation? God, who's sovereign ruler over all things, he made a kingdom, and he's king over it. Okay, now we may look out at the world right now, and we go, well, that doesn't, there's a lot of brokenness there, right? People are fighting, okay? Things are not going really well. There's a lot of sickness going around, okay? And, and we can look at it and go, well, is that really true? Is that true? Now, Miss Caroline's going to put some pictures up on the screen, and I want you to look at those for a minute, okay, while I talk. Okay, she's going to put these up. These are pictures that were, that were pulled from National Geographic places around the world, Okay, now when you look at these things, yeah, your eyes pop out of your head and you go, wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, see, these are, these are places that are in the world right now. These are beautiful places that God made, okay? And so we look at creation and we say, you know, when, in the beginning when God made stuff, everything was good. Everything had a purpose, okay? And not only was it good, it was very good, okay? It was just what God had intended, okay? All right, and so we have to understand that all things look to God, okay? They look to Him for dependency. That's what the Psalms say. Psalm 104 speaks a lot about all of creation and God's glory in creation. It says in verse 27, 
all these things look to you. So that all the things that are beautiful in these pictures that you see and all those things are like, wow, that's praise coming out of us when we say that. Do you know that? Okay? But all of these things depend on God in order to be what they are. They depend on him right now. Right? If God removed his glory from them, they wouldn't exist anymore. That's right, like us. Like us. Okay, so here's the point. We have to make sure that we understand that all things depend on God for their goodness. Okay, Paul, the, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. And he said, Timothy, he said, everything created by God is good. He doesn't say that it was good. Like God made stuff and then it got messed up and he's like, oh man. No, he said, it is good. It is good. So there is goodness in all that God has created. Okay? All right? And so we have to make sure we understand that, that we don't just say, you know, I want to escape all the hard things that are in this world. No, because when God created the world, he created it good, and it was very good. And all things depend on him for any goodness that's in them, okay? But we also have to understand that they get their goodness from God. How many of you guys like to go play in the woods? or play in the creek, or go walk along trails, right? And we enjoy those things. We're, man, this is awesome. I love being out here. I love being out in the world. I love seeing animals, right? Getting to see monarch butterflies, right? Break out of their chrysalis. My girl saw that this past, uh, last weekend, hatched, right? And we say, wow, that's awesome, okay? But we got to make sure that, that we're not just amazed at the creation itself. We need to understand that what's amazing about that is that God created it. He said, I want to reflect my glory in this. Okay? So God created a kingdom, right? And he's king over that kingdom. And that kingdom is good. All right? So that's the, the lesson for this morning. Okay, I want you guys to go home this week. I want you to work on memorizing that verse. Okay, Genesis what? 1 31, 131, Genesis 131, okay? Now, next week, we're going to find out the next part of this story, okay, that God decided he didn't want to rule this kingdom alone, okay? But that'll be next week. So I thank you guys for listening. All right, let's pray, and then you guys will be dismissed, okay? Kids that are going uh, to Kids Church, you guys will meet Miss Kelly back there at that door, okay? Preschoolers, parents, again, they'll meet Miss Sarah right back there at the door by the rocking chair. All right, let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you that your glory is displayed in all of creation. Father, from the depths of the ocean, turtles that swim, whales, fish that swim, birds that fly, people, Lord, that live and move and have their being, all things exist for your glory and you created them so father we give you praise and we give you glory for your creation and how your glory is displayed in all of your creation lord bless these young children this morning help them to see you in all things that are around them father and that they would give you glory and praise for all that you've made lord bless us as we continue to worship you today it's in jesus name we pray amen all right you guys are dismissed thank you <coughs> Stand one more time for me, if you will. Not for me, but...
Déjame decir. Before Alan comes to preach, let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are a good and gracious king. You provide for us all things, all things necessary to make us like Jesus. And that's not easy. It's not easy because we don't always get the things that we necessarily want. We can trust that you always give your children the things that they need. So, Father, we give you praise. We lift your name. We also lift up to you our missionaries that we support in Bangladesh, in Ireland, in China, and other parts of the world. Father, you would provide for them all things necessary to take the gospel to the people that you've put them in context with. Give them courage, Father. Give them strength. Give them the words they need. Father, not for their glory, but for yours, that you might be exalted. And Father, provide their hearers ears to hear and eyes to see Jesus, that they would love Christ, Father. They would know him. They would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, Father, that that love might overflow into their tribes, into their communities, into the neighbor, neighborhoods, cities, states, provinces, all the regions around them, Father, until your name is exalted in every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So, Father, would you do all these things and more? Bless Alan as he comes this morning, Father. May he open your word. Would you teach us from it, Father? And do business with our hearts as we continue to worship you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Caroline, you can, or Nathan, whoever, you can turn this down a bit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. I won't unpack anything from verse 1 because we looked at that last week, but I will start there just to give more of a launching pad for the rest of it. So. so let me catch you up to the context of this. For those of you that are visiting with us, we preach verse by verse. Um, we walk through a, a, a text and do an expositional style of teaching. Um, uh, I, my personal opinion is that is the best way to do that, especially if you're trying to teach the, the overarching theme of a book of the Bible so you get it in total. You get the full context of these things so that you can make sense of this. Because that's how the Holy Spirit inspired these writers to write. Um, and that helps prevent us from taking things in isolation and then just kind of becoming proof texters. Okay, so um, so the context of this is pretty simple because Paul basically says the same thing over and over again throughout this letter to this church, this church with new believers who have been infiltrated by some who are saying, listen, this is what you say the gospel is, this is what you say hope is, where your hope is at or what your hope is in, but, but let, let us add to this. And let's throw circumcision into the mix. And so, because that is the way of Judaism, okay? So all the male children circumcised the eighth day to be a part of Israel, all this kind of stuff. So now they're saying that, listen, if you want to be right with Christ, you have to be circumcised. So they're adding a work to salvation. And, uh, and Paul's writing to combat this. He sees these young believers who are being led away. And he says, you're so quickly being led away by the one who called you. You're being led astray by them. Who has bewitched you, he says? Who has confused you? Who has tricked you? Who has manipulated you? You know, he's saying, don't, don't chase after those things. And then he spends an entire letter so far 
or the, the, the portion that we've gone through, he spends that basically developing argument after argument against anything outside of the true, pure gospel. And he offers a lot of strong statements. He says anyone who defiles that gospel, anyone who disseminates or, 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 or promotes a false gospel, he's saying let them be cursed. I mean, there's some strong language that kind of is written throughout here because of what's at stake. It's not that Paul's just hard for being the sake for the sake of just being hard and tough or mean. I mean, there's something at stake here. You know, if if your child is going to go and play in the street and be haphazard about it and not and not look left or right or not watch for oncoming traffic, especially if it's a busy road, your tone might be a little bit different. You're not going to sit there and say, "Oh, go outside and have fun." You know, don't don't get run over. You know, you're going to say, "Listen, listen." If you're not careful, you could die, you know, and sometimes we're, we use more extreme language than others, okay? So, um, so we, we choose our tone depending on what's at stake or whatever the case may be, and so that's what Paul has done because the gospel's at stake. If the gospel's at stake, lives are at stake. Eternal lives are at stake, and so he goes through all of these things, but we enter into this very significant portion of this text where he offers some strong warnings. He's already offered warnings, but now he kind of, he kind of, if I can use this expression, he, 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 he kind of, it's a very sobering tone or very sobering response or, or, or an action and desiring a very sober response from them because of what he's about to say. And so he offers some very, very strong warnings here. Now, what you're going to see in this text is there's a, there's a contrast with works and warning, and then he says, well, here's how you do it. You love. You want to sum up the law, the law that these Judaizers are concerned with? You want to sum it up, and he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He just, he rides the coattails of the heels of Jesus when he says, you want to know what the second, first and second greatest commandments are? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul just follows right in that, that lane with Christ. So let's read together verses 1 through 15 of chapter 5. Paul says, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not be submit or do not submit or be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I... Paul say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the entire law. You are severed from Christ, he says. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well, he says, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if, but if, he says, I, brothers, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So there's a lot happening in that text. And so this is part one of a two-part teaching. I'm going to come back and teach this love aspect because that's a weighty statement in and of itself, this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. We're going to dive into that next week and really explore that and see how that applies. And that's probably all we're going to go into because that's the contrast here. Hey, don't do this, don't do this, but focus on love. Don't, don't, don't bite at one another, don't do this. But hey, if, if you want to concern yourself with the law, if you want to concern yourself with those things, can you concern yourself in this way that you love your neighbor as yourself because that fulfills it all in a statement. So we're going to walk through these warnings that Paul offers. And here's my objective today, to better understand the danger of false gospels by observing these four warnings. We know that a false gospel is bad. We know that he says, let them be cursed. We know that that's bad. We understand that. But you know how my brain works. I think there's always ways to uh, uh, inspect or take a look at the mechanics of a thing. And so that's kind of what we're going to do today. So I'm just going to straight up lay out what these four warnings are because they show up here in the text and we'll walk through some statements that he says uh, under that heading or under that warning to see how he's describing the consequence of these things. So he says, look, I say to you this, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no, of no advantage to you. He says this to those who follow a false gospel. So pretty clearly, the first warning here is a warning to those who pursue or follow a false gospel. That's been the whole letter of Galatians. If you've, if you've come away with anything else, I mean, you've you got you to come away with that. All right, there's a warning against false gospel because of all the ramifications that come with a false gospel. So there's a warning against those things. Christ, he says, is of no advantage to you. Nothing really complex about this, but I want you to kind of get this scene in your mind. The scene is judgment day. The scene is when we stand before God and we give an account for our lives. That's the scene. Now you could say, well, Christ is no advantage of you, meaning that you don't benefit from the gospel, and that's absolutely true. But very specifically here, Christ is of no advantage to you, and I want you to see it this way. You stand, and then all of your sins are laid out, and then the judge, who is God, has all of those sins. And you have to give an account, and somebody has to be held accountable for those sins. At that moment, guess who's not going to stand in the gap for you, Jesus. On that day, Jesus will not step up to the plate and take the lashing. On that day, Jesus will not stand in the gap and be an advocate for you. Jesus will rally behind the Father as wrath and judgment are pronounced because God is good as a judge. He's perfect and pure in all of his justice. That's the role that Jesus will play on that day. That's what it means that Jesus will be no advantage to you. For those that think that they will grovel at the feet of God one day, that they will say, you know what, I know that I've made a mistake. I know that that will happen. Well, doesn't the Bible say that one day every knee will bow and one day every tongue will confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus is Lord? I had a Mormon tell me one time, well, that just means that everybody's eventually going to be able to go to heaven, with the exception of a few apostates. That's not what that text means. 
I believe that that means there is a day that people will realize he is everything that he said he was and that they've missed out. I'm not saying that they'll desire him because I do believe right now that hatred are filled with people that still mock and scoff and hate God. But there will be no standing and groveling at the feet of God and saying, you know what, Lord, if I had it to do all over again, I would have done it differently. Lord, you know my heart and you know that I'm sincere. Of course you're sincere when you're standing before the judge who will pronounce condemnation on your life. Of course in that moment you would say, I'll change my tune. Of course you would say, I would have not treated my wife that way. Lord, I would have taken your word more seriously. Of course you would on that day. Of course you would say, oh, I would have evangelized more people. Sure you would. Absolutely. If you're standing before a firing squad, you get real pure in your life real fast. That's how that works. But there will be no rescue. There's no hero that comes charging in on a horse. There's no white, no, no, no knight in shining armor. There's, there's none of that. There will be wrath. And there will be judgment. And that's what Paul means when he says, Christ is of no advantage to you. Galatians, do not return again to a yoke of slavery. Do not do it. Because if you do it and you die, there will be no rescue for you. And that's a reality. And that message hasn't changed. That warning has not changed. You understand that, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's Christianity 101. We know that if we die without Jesus... We stand before God. There's really no hope. But I want that to really sink in. I want that to really, really, really sink in. Because I think a lot of people might still be surprised one day when they stand before God. And when they experience a holiness that they never knew existed. When they experience a justice that they never could ever fathom in this life. And then when they receive a wrath that they could never even articulate. Or explain. So there's a warning. Christ is of no advantage. By the way, today's message is somewhat heavy. A little bit. Okay? So, but it's where we are in the text. All right? You got a problem with me. You got a problem with the Bible. You got a problem with Paul. So you got bigger issues than me. So here we are walking through this text. All right? I'm just teaching it as I understand it. And it, and it, and it has weighed heavily on me all week. Because I think this, we, we should walk away here today. Here's a, here's a quick application. You should walk away here not looking at one another, but looking within. Introspection. I'm not trying to be a fear monger, not trying to say, well, you know, some of you, <laughs> you know, are in question, or you should really question yourself. I'm not saying that. God knows you. God knows me. I'm looking at my life, and I'm saying, what's going on? So Christ would be at no advantage. So this is a warning to those who follow a false gospel. And he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to do what? To keep the entire law. He's obligated to keep the law. So those who choose a false gospel, be it this gospel of works, be it a gospel of health and wealth and prosperity, be it a gospel of moralism, you are bound and held to that standard. Do you understand that? And there's no other gospel that you can hold its standard. The gospel of Christianity doesn't have anything to do with you holding its standard. It has to do with what Christ met, what Christ did, the demand that he met and his accomplishments, not yours. That's the beauty of Christianity. Jesus does the heavy lifting. And don't tell me you don't love it when somebody steps in and does the heavy lifting for you. Well, Jesus has done that. That's why the Christian gospel, the true gospel, the pure gospel is so beautiful. But we know that there are others. 
We know that there are other gospels, and people put their stock in those things. Let me ask you a few questions. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand for this, how many of you would consider jumping out of a parachute, a, a plane with a parachute that you've packed for yourself? That should be an instant nope, <laughs> unless you've been trained, okay? But this assumes that you're like me, and your feet belong on the ground, and you would not jump out of a plane, even if, if God packed my parachute, I would. I would jump out of the plane with that, okay? But I don't, I, I just, I can't bring myself, I, I know human error, because I am one, and, and, and I, I couldn't bring myself to jump out of a plane, because what if, what if? What if the manufacturer got it wrong? What if this, this, this mere human, this mere human packed my chute and didn't do it right, you know? And, and what, if the, what if the ripcord gets jammed, you know? What if I can't find the thing because I'm freaking out, you know, at, at 5,000 feet above the ground or, or however high you jump from? You're not trained. You're not equipped. You're not, you're not experienced to do that. It makes no sense for you to pack your own chute when you haven't been taught how to do that. <laughs> that's, that's dumb. How many of you would, would, if you could, if they could sedate you with a way that you would stay awake, would perform heart surgery on yourself? Mark had heart surgery. Mark, you think it's a good idea for you, sir? You can build probably most things, but you can't rebuild a heart, right? So would it be a great idea for us to just lay there? We're, we're, we're wide open, right? I mean, just there it is. You know, your heart's there, all this stuff. Here's your instruments. And they say, we're going to leave. We're going to give you some privacy, You've got everything you need. You've got monitors over here. You can check your vitals. I don't even know what those things do. They beep, and that's all I know. I don't even, I don't even know what my blood pressure should be, okay? That's how bad off I am. Why would I take these instruments and start just doing stuff? I've got a camera. I've got everything I need in terms of instrumentation and tools, right? Not that I know what it would take, but let's say I do. I know the tools it would take, right? No, we wouldn't do that. We're not trained to do that. We're not educated to do that. That makes no sense. You would say, that's... Okay, that's, that's really out there. Of course it is, because it's, it's, that's how outlandish it is. This is the same scenario when it comes to relying on your law-keeping, as he's speaking to the Galatians, or relying on circumcision, or relying on works, or relying on moralism, or whatever. This is the same scenario in hopes that by doing this or doing that, that you could somehow arrive at a place before God outside of Christ, and he says, enter into my rest. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. If the Galatians choose or would have chosen to trust this perversion of the gospel and not a gospel, not the true gospel, then they would be held accountable to the standard of that false gospel. He's saying, hey, if you're going to trust works, moralism, then, then that's the standard you're going to be held by. And guess what? You will fall short. If you say, you know what, I, I, I think it's, I think it's, uh, you've, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to do good. I mean, I, I don't think that it's necessarily Jesus is the way. I think for me, the way is, you know, help enough people, you know, out, put it on a scale, and the good outweighs the bad. The, the reality is that it will never outweigh the bad. And, and even a better truth than that, I guess, is to say, it, there's no good to go on the scale, because outside of Christ, your righteousness is bad. You don't have goodness, for there's no one righteous, no, not one. So what if you're given the prosperity gospel? What happens when you're not so prosperous? I mean, you see when these false gospels are introduced, you'll be held accountable by that, and you'll fail. You'll fail. That's what he says. He says, listen, I testify again 
Every man who accepts circumcision, if that's the gospel you're going to trust, what he said in Galatians 1, this false gospel, if that's what you're going to trust, then you must keep the whole law. And you can't do it. You will fail. The beauty of the true gospel, again, is that Jesus does the heavy lifting. He does the keeping. He does the providing. He says, you keep the whole law. Again, under this same warning, he says, you are severed from Christ. You are severed. You're cut off. You are severed from Christ. And that's just, I'm not, there's not a whole lot to say about that other than you are, you are cut off. Now, I want to be clear. If, if someone comes here today and they're following a false gospel, right? We're, we're, we want to give them the true gospel. So it's not saying, hey, well, you've, you've, you've gone this way. There's no hope for you. You know, I believe if you're called, there's absolutely hope for you. It's not just hope. It's definitive. It's, it's going to happen, right? But I would look at anybody and say, you're worthy of giving the gospel to no matter what you believe. No matter what you believe. I don't know who God's elect are, but I can say, hey, you, oh, you're an atheist? Oh, you want to kill everybody because you hate everybody? Well, let me give you the gospel. I believe God can change that heart. That's fine. I have no problems with that. You know, so I'm not saying, oh, because you've trusted a false gospel, that's the one chance that you get. It is the chance that you get in this life or, or that there, you don't you don't get another due or whatever. Then here you can submit to this false gospel. God changes you and you find the true gospel and life is changed. So you're severed from Christ. He says you're cut off when you're cut off. He's of no advantage to you. But he also says something that's interesting and it's kind of hard for us to to chew on. He says, not only are you severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law, but you also have fallen away from grace. You've fallen away from grace. And that's not a, I mean, I'm pretty confident in what it means. Uh, I I think it is a somewhat complex statement to make because it can be interpreted in different ways, but not multiple ways that are right, obviously. So let me walk through that for just a second, if you'll allow me to chase this for just a moment, because I want to talk about I want to talk about that. Because there are those certain camps that would say, see, you could fall from grace, meaning you Galatians were in Christ. Now you're not, because you've gone that way. You were truly saved, truly born again, truly recipients of the covenants of promise, truly all these things, but now you're not. You've lost it. That's what some would teach. I don't know if it's every part of the Methodist camp, but that is a teaching in the Methodist church. The Catholic church teaches the same thing. It says, you know, well, if, if you can lose your salvation, you can fall from grace. A free will Baptist will teach the same thing. You can gain salvation, but you can also lose salvation. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think... I think not only is the doctrine of loss of salvation offensive, but I think it's an attack on the cross. And, and I'll, you'd be hard-pressed to convince me other way, otherwise. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. This is not a loss of salvation. I believe such a soteriology is offensive in an attack on the gospel itself. It's an attack on the keeping power of Jesus. It's an attack on sanctification it's an attack on God's work in conforming you and me to the image of Jesus. It's an attack on the reality that before the foundation of the world, there was inherit an inheritance that was placed for you, 1 Peter 3. Major problems for me. It's a major offense. 
major offense. And I don't think it's a small thing. If someone in here says, well, I think you can lose your salvation. I don't think it's, oh, we can just agree to disagree. I think you hunker down and you fight that stuff out. I do. I think you're wrong if you hold that. And horribly, horribly wrong. The Lutheran worldview taught that you would lose salvation, but only lose it through rejecting the faith. And so the Protestant movement, uh, evangelicalism, might say something somewhat similar to that. We would say, well, you can't lose salvation, but we would say if you reject the faith, some would say, well, that's the unpardonable sin. Without going into all that fun discussion, I'm just going to say this. I do believe that, yes, if you die without Jesus, there's no hope. He's of no advantage to you. If you die trusting another gospel, yeah, there's no hope. Jesus is no advantage to you. So in that sense, yeah, okay, I, I, you know, I'm fine. You reject the faith. In other words, you never had faith, true salvific faith. The Catholic camp will lean on things like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, which in part says, do you know that the righteous will not inherit the, or, uh, sorry, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Of course I agree with that. Of course. But there's a major disconnect in what Catholicism teaches and what the Bible teaches. Because what the Bible teaches is, no, there's no one righteous, no, not one. You don't have righteousness in in and of yourself. Jesus imputes that to you. Jesus gives that to you. And now you stand before God with his righteousness. So the righteous inherit the kingdom of God, but not those who are righteous in and of themselves, but those whose righteousness has been given to them, imputed to them through Jesus Christ. So that's how we make sense of that text. And that's how we offer rebuttal for that faulty interpretation. They also believe it to be the point of the prodigal son parable. The point for Catholicism of the prodigal son parable and why they would argue loss of salvation and not just loss of salvation, but the regaining of salvation. So you understand that if you tease it out, you play this thing out. Okay, inheritance on the shelf, inheritance taken off, inheritance on the shelf, it's taken off. You know, God's probably thinking, why don't you just make up your mind? Do you want me or do you not? And I don't think that that's the way the Bible teaches that relationship dynamic. And they would say the prodigal son was good and he was safe and he was kept and he was in the confides of his home and under the, 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 the leadership and the protection of his father and he had this inheritance and all these things promised him. He was, he was set, he was good, which that is what the parable teaches. And then he goes and squanders his wealth with loose and wild living. And then he begins eating from which the, from the trough that the pigs were eating, right? And so he's, he's in this this, this horrible position with his life. And he says, well, how many of my father's hired men are eating better than myself? I'm going to go back to him. So he goes back to his father, and his father sees him from a long way off. And the relationship was restored, even though the older brother was a little jealous. They kill the fattened calf, ring on his finger, sandal on his feet, and they throw a party. He is lost. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the teaching in the Catholic Church is that, see, the, the, the point of the story is that he lost his salvation but he can regain it if he just comes to his senses. When the Bible teaches, no such thing. It doesn't teach that you can lose it and regain it when you come to your senses. Lose it and regain it when you come to your senses. The Catholic Church believes in salvation regained because Catechism of the Catholic Church 982, there is no offense however serious, that the church cannot forgive. 
At the end of the day, this is not a question of our ability to lose our salvation, but a question of whether or not Christ can keep us. And obviously the answer is that Christ does the keeping. To be sure, let me say this very carefully and with clarity, if left to ourselves, we could lose salvation. If left to yourself. The beauty of that is Christ does the keeping, not us. So you go from one view that, yeah, there's extreme potential. Extreme potential. If you view it that way. But the reality is without Christ, there's no way of salvation. And this is just why I believe the doctrine of losing salvation is offensive to the gospel. And I can... I mean, I think there's just so, so much strength in the text to support when you're truly in Christ, the work that he does to secure you. I mean, I've already mentioned some, but I think of, I think of, of the salvific love of God expressed in the text where it says, uh, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. It says heights, depths, angels, principality, things present, things to come, powers, nor any other created thing. I'm a created thing. You say, not even you can separate you from the love of God. Once that salvific love is placed on you, you can't separate yourself from that. I think the obvious teaching is that if you're truly in Christ, truly in Christ, you're not going to try to worm your way out of salvation. So what does this fall from grace mean? Let me just, let me quote Timothy George, a a theologian, commentary, uh, a commentator, He said the church was founded on the doctrines of grace. And these Galatians were in danger of forsaking that sound doctrinal bedrock for a theology that can only lead to ruin and ultimately prove that they were never in Christ. For as the scripture says, they went away from us because they were never of us. So this teaching of circumcision was a an amalgamation of the gospel. It was a perversion of the gospel. And Calvin said, whoever wants to have a half Christ loses a whole Christ. And I think this is a sobering warning for the church today. And I'll get into it in just a moment if time allots. If not, I'll just pick up next week because I don't want to rush through this. I want want you to sweat for at least two services. So it's sobering. If there's ever a right place for a warning label it's in it's in the church i mean we, you know if you're a parent in here you're 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 very familiar with warning labels some of them are <laughs> maybe somewhat arbitrary some of them are, are, are a bit unnecessary you know i, I read a warming la- i'm no kidding i read a warning label the other day doing some research that i think it was a heavy machinery it says do not operate while unconscious on it <laughs> okay, you know, that's obvious, right? That's obvious. Some of these things are obvious. You know, hey, don't, don't, don't drink Clorox, okay? Harmful if ingested. Okay, well, we know what it does. You know, I mean, it bleaches things. You know, don't do that, right? It cleans things or bleach bleaches things, I guess. But you get a Clorox bleach, you know. There are things that are obvious. And I think this should be obvious. You know, hey, church, here we go. Let's bring this into our context. Be careful of false gospels. 
Be careful of following the false gospel because they're everywhere out there. If you, if you want another list, just go back to uh, uh, my sermon from Galatians 1, uh, verses 6 through 10, and I give you a list of all the false gospels that are being perpetuated today. You know, because uh, like me, you probably don't remember them, so I had to go back and look. But they're there, and they're easy to follow because people are following them, hook, line, and sinker. So I think this is an appropriate warning, but that's where he starts off. He said, I'm, I'm telling you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You'll have to keep the law. You'll be held to a standard that you cannot keep, but you need Christ to do it for you, and you'll be severed from Christ, and you'll fall away from grace. Hebrews 6 has the, has the same kind of language that some people will say, see, you can lose your salvation. But Hebrews 6 is basically saying, here's the deal. Grace is here, but grace is only going to be here for you for so long, salvifically. One day you will stand before God, and there won't be this salvific grace that's on the table for you yet one more time. So, there's a warning against those who would follow a false gospel. A second warning is this. There's a warning towards sin entering the camp. There's a warning towards sin that enters the church or enters the the body of Christ. Listen to what he says. You've fallen away from grace, verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. We'll talk about that next week. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's something you've heard before. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And uh, you most likely understand that, but they would most certainly have understood that. You know, uh, Paul appeals to a part of their culinary culture, right? Bread has been something we've made and baked for thousands of years, right? And so, I mean, I can't do it, but I can eat it, right? But they could make it, right? So, so they understood how yeast worked, how leaven works. And it only takes a little bit to affect everything, right? I think, it's, uh, I think it says that there's like two and a quarter teaspoon of yeast to go per every pound of flour to get the desired result. Am I, am I, am I in the right ballpark, my culinary friend down here? So, so um, uh, Tracy went to culinary school and she hasn't made anything for me in years, so that's on her. Um, so <laughs> Maybe she used to make things for our group and I would hide them from the group for myself. I did that, all right? I'm confessing, I'm not perfect, get off my back. So, up to two and a quarter teaspoons of yeast per pound of flour. So they would understand this. When he says this, they get it like, oh, it just takes a very little bit to really infiltrate and impact a lot. Now, you can, you can look at that. The, the, the application is clear. It's, it can either uh, affect the body or affect you individually. It's both. Right, sin definitely affects you individually, but sin most definitely affects us as a body. And I'll get to that in just a second. But he says that to the Galatians. They were being told that they could have their cake and eat it too. Remember, it's a perversion of the gospel. These people came in as infiltrators and they were like, well, yeah, you, you've got those things, you've got that, but you need to tack circumcision onto that. And Paul addresses that very quickly. He said, it, it's, it's not just a perversion of it, it, it creates a false gospel altogether. It just does. That's a false gospel. So there's no such thing. So, that, so now we look at it kind of in our life. And this is how we need to think of this. This, this one little statement, we need to think of it in this way, that, that there are no minor 
in fractions when it comes to sin. Right, we, we think in terms of God's economy. All right, we think in terms of how God views these things, not how you and I view these things, because that can get us in a whole lot of trouble. Because our tendency is to categorize our sins. Our tendency is to justify our sins or to let ourselves get away with certain sinful activity in our life because we think it's more benign as opposed to a cancerous sin over here. You know, and we have to step back and say, okay, uh, I, I know that it's my nature to sin and I know I'm a, a broken vessel and one day God will, will remedy and rectify all of these things and that's great, but I'm to strive for holiness, I'm to strive for purity and I am to hate the world and the things of it, I am to hate sin. You know, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the idea. So there's no minor infractions. There's, we don't look at it as felonies and misdemeanors in God's economy. There may be different consequences and, and don't get me wrong don't get me wrong that I understand that in the scripture, God has a list of the sins that he singles out and says, these things I hate. When later he just says, I hate sin, <laughs> you know, or, 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 or before that he says, I hate sin. So we know that God hates sin, but he does seem to single some things out, which is interesting to work through. Well, let's just take it as this. Sin is nothing to be trivial about. Sin is nothing to be cavalier about. Sin has a detrimental effect always, always. He says a little leaven. Leaven's the whole lump. It, it, it spreads and affects. It has this cancerous effect. This is, a, this is in part why church discipline exists. You want to see the sinner restored. But you, but you also want to protect the church from intruding and invasive sin. Sin when it pertains to sin, period, but let's say sin when it pertains to the church is not a victimless crime. And I want, you to, I want to challenge you to think a, a certain way here. Your private sins, your pet sins, your justifiable sins, your respectable sins. Jerry Bridges, great book. If you haven't read it, read it if you're ready for a spanking. These sins were like, you know what I'm not doing? I'm not beating my wife. So what? I flipped somebody off in traffic. They cut me off, right? So we're like... You know what you just did, this, this compare and contrast game? Yes, 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 this was offensive to God, but this was less so. But we miss the fact that it's still offensive. Is it because God made a finger that's offensive? No, it's because the heart, the heart that caused you to do what you did because you wanted to communicate a disdain for somebody and their actions. But I want to challenge you with this. Your private sins are not only unloving, towards God and his law. For the psalmist says, I delight in your law. I love your precepts. But it's unloving towards the church. Your sins are unloving towards the bride of Christ. You're like, well, what if my sins aren't directed at the bride of Christ? What, it's, what if it's my gluttony? How does that crush Joey Dixon and his family? I would love to crush Joey Dixon, but you understand what I'm saying. How does that do that, you know? 
I get it. I get it. So I, I, there, there are mechanics here. Let me just say a few things as I was thinking about this. I, I want to I present this because in my mind, I think, okay, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Okay, I think that the scripture says in Numbers, your sins will find you out. Um, I think of that. I think when, the, when, the whole bo- you know, when, when somebody suffers, the whole body suffers. There seems to be a connection to people in the body of Christ. That's why we should make much of community. That's why we shouldn't live as Christian isolationists. You know, while we shouldn't just be like, well, I'll, you know, I'll do my thing, but I'm going to detach myself from the, from the body. You know, uh, community's hard. I get that. And we don't, we don't fire on all cylinders there all the time. I get that. But there is an idea biblically here, and you see it when he talks about sin. Because when one person is affected, it seems that other people are affected. And the question is, how does that work? How does that happen? Because it doesn't matter. And maybe that would lead us to not be so flippant about our own sin when I think, this is unloving towards God. It's unloving toward, towards his law. It's unloving towards those that I maybe intentionally sin against, if that's the kind of sin. And it's unloving against my brothers and sisters in Christ. Your sins will find you out. Your sins will hinder your fellowship with the body. You ever seen that happen? Somebody gets entrenched in a sin. And they start to slowly disconnect from the body of Christ because of shame, because of guilt, because of preference, because of their own affair with sin. Because it's just simply not room for you to serve two masters. And that hurts the body. If some of you get into sin or if you get into sin and you start to disappear, it should grieve the hearts of your brothers and sisters here. It should grieve your heart. Trust me. My heart is grieved, has been grieved on a number of occasions with that very thing. Your sins could create disunity in the body. You're upset with something. And you don't go to your brother who has offended you. But rather... You have something to say to somebody else. And it starts to create disunity. It's called gossip. There's a reason God said, hey, it's not easy, but go to your brother who offended you. And say, look, I may be off here, but I feel offended. And work that junk out. (laughs) I mean, for real. Your sins will bring guilt and shame and cause you to pull away from the body. And you start to see how this happens. And so you're like, well, my sin really doesn't affect people. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Even if it's your personal little sin, it's not aimed at anybody or trying to hurt anybody, you know, you just want to click and watch porn and do that all by yourself. Well, then let's talk about what it's doing to your marriage. Well, I'm a single man. I'm not married. Okay, well, let's talk about what it's doing to your relationship to Jesus. Let's talk about what it's doing to your, your perspective when it comes to purity and when it comes to the relationship dynamic uh, with a Christian and Jesus and then to a wife that, that, that you may have or to a husband that you might have. And let's talk about the guilt and the shame that comes there. Let's talk talk about coming and living this life and having this secret, but you're posing as something else or you're trying to hide that, not confessing that, not trying to find purity, then it starts to affect the relationship that you have within the body. You see, a little leaven leavens the whole lump in different ways, at different paces, but it does. So sin should never, ever be something that we're cavalier about, and that's why Paul warns against it. Now, we're talking here specifically about the sin of a false gospel. Different scenario, different context, different weight, different outcome. 
to a degree. He doesn't end with that warning. If the spanking wasn't enough, he offers another one. Listen to verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. In that case, the offense of the cross, or says us, or whoever he is, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you or trouble you, like he said in uh, chapter 1, those who come in and troubling you, would, would emasculate themselves, would become eunuchs, would castrate themselves. That's some strong language. I mean, men, can we agree? All right, I know you, you all are a bunch of ameners, but this is the great time to, in your mind, say, amen. That's a big deal, <laughs> right? So, so they will bear the penalty. Rest assured that God will deal with those who stand in the way of the tr- true gospel. All right, that, that's, that's, that's obvious. There's, you know, it is a high crime to stand in the way of the gospel. Why did Jesus call Peter Satan in the gospels? I mean, I've been called a lot of things, but not Satan. Right? And Jesus called him Satan. Why? Because he was standing in the way of the cross. No, Jesus, not. No, you can't, you can't go. You can't do that. No, you've got to stay here. No, Jesus, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> what he says. They will bear the penalty, Paul says. Here's your warning. Here's your warning. Those who promote, propagate, or disseminate a false gospel, they will be dealt with. There's your warning, 10 through 12. They will bear the penalty, and then he says he wishes that they would emasculate themselves. There are a lot of translations that try to take this from an R rating to a PG or even a a G rating. Uh, by saying different things, but I think it lessens the force of what Paul's getting at. This is not a misspeak. This is as close to the Greek as it gets, right? Nobody, nobody's ignoring that the Greek actually says this, but some translators say, eh, I'm not comfortable with that kind of language. My people will not like that. They're a bit prudish and proper, but he says, I wish they'd castrate themselves. You say, why? And then it gets into a whole big thing, right? So just for funsies, let me, let me throw this at you. <laughs> Paul's going to say, love your neighbor. Jesus said the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But Paul is offering up words of imprecation here. You've heard of an imprecatory prayer. That's when the psalmist uh, specifically prays that someone would be destroyed. I mean, he's praying for destruction or, or whatever on somebody. Uh, Psalm 69, 24, that's exactly what David prays. He says, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. That is not how I typically pray for folks. <laughs> I mean, husbands, I would advise you in your leadership, sitting at the dinner table, Lord, pour out your eternal holy damnation. On that man that cut me off and I gave the bird to today. But leave my finger out of this. I don't, I don't think that that's the way it should be. So it presents this issue because Paul's going to say, hey, love your neighbor as yourself. But guess what he just said? I wish they'd castrate themselves. That's a pretty volatile wish and definitely an imprecation. So it's a strong statement and it's there for a reason. Let me tease this out for a second just to ask you some questions. I'm going to take the Matt Brock approach and 
ask a lot of questions, all right, just to make you think, okay, because I love that brother, but every time we talk on the phone for hours, most of it is, let me ask you this, let me ask you this. Am I mad? Just tell me what you want me to think and let's get on with it, okay? Should Christians pray for the death of ISIS? 17, 16 U.S., one Canadian, 17 Christian missionaries just days ago were kidnapped in Haiti by the 400 Mawazo gang, volatile gang, murderous gang, demanding a million dollars per person or else they'll kill everybody. Should we pray that God would smite them, that God would overtake them, that God would kill them and preserve the lives of these missionaries? Let's take it to any context. I mean, David prayed for these things, and it was just because Saul was pursuing him. He was hiding. He was in caves. He was trying to escape. He's like, God, overtake them. Rain down what you got, man. How do we reconcile this imprecatory language with love your neighbor as yourself? One author said this that I thought was helpful. Maybe there's a difference in cursing someone yourself versus asking God to bring about his judgments on his time. And it can be slippery slope. And I'm not going to try to answer all those questions. I started writing stuff out, but it would be my opinion because I'm wrestling with those things now. So there's no place for that here. So here's the rationale, I believe, behind Paul's imprecations. First, it fits the motif of the context. The false gospel was that they need to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul, in his frustration towards the people, said, Heck, you know what? Hey, if, if circumcision is the measure of spiritual value, cut it all off. Let's, let's, let's not just stop at foreskin. Let's, let's, go to, let's, go to, let's go to, you know, let's castrate them. That's what they should do if that's really what's going on here. He's simply saying they should go all the way. Since they believe circumcision has spiritual value, why not go all the way? Consider what's at stake here. And so where it may be difficult to understand what he's saying, well, it's not difficult to understand what he's saying, but to understand why is, I think, what's clear. And that is eternity is at stake Eternity is at stake. It was more important that the gospel remain pure than men remain whole or even alive. I mean, Jesus himself, Jesus himself, if we have problems with Paul's language, Jesus himself said, listen, if anyone is a stumbling block to these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and cast to the bottom of the sea. What did he mean? He mean they'd be better off dead than doing that. So because of what Jesus says, I'm not so quick to say, Paul, that may be too much. No. Jesus said the same kind of, Paul's not wishing death. He's just wishing castration. How many times do you hear preachers talk about that, by the way, right? So we have to look at the warning with introspective lenses are we guilty knowingly or unknowingly? Are we guilty directly, indirectly of, of, of this warning, of, of disseminating or promoting a false gospel? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish on this point. 
conclude this point with application, and we'll pick up with a final warning next week and then introduce this love language. It'll be a good contrast, uh, but there's just too much, and I knew this would happen, just too much. So, But let me finish with this application. We have to look at the warning with introspective lenses, guilty or not, knowingly, unknowingly, direct, indirect. And let me explain what I mean by that. This is guilty of promoting a false gospel because no one would probably look at themselves and say, well, I'm telling people they have to be circumcised to be saved, or I'm telling people they have to be uh, a good worker to be saved. I mean, I don't think that anybody's in here saying that. If that's you, then that's a false gospel, you know, and you need to repent and believe. Directly, that is what it is. We add to the gospel or we take away from the gospel. We introduced a gospel contrary to the true, true, pure gospel of Christ. But indirectly, now that can be tricky. Indirectly, we can be guilty of this by living like old creatures when we've been made into new creatures. We can introduce a false gospel. We've got to be very careful with this. If we return again to a yoke of slavery, because what we communicate there is, hey, look, look, look. The gospel, the true gospel says, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. But if I'm saying, I have the gospel of Jesus, and yet someone looks at you and says, you're under a yoke of slavery, what does that say about the gospel you promote? It doesn't represent the gospel of Jesus because that gospel frees you from the yoke of slavery. So by living as a slave to sin, rather than living as someone who has been set free, you run the risk of conveying a false gospel what about by expanding the parameters of the gospel's reach now let me give a give a note here the gospel stretches to the east to the west there's no the gospel i've heard it saves from the guttermost to the othermost the gospel you know reaches anyone who who may believe so there's no there's no limit to its power you know <laughs> it's a, it's 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 the power of god of salvation to all who believe paul says so we understand the gospel's power but the scope and the reach in terms of who the gospel affects is those who trust Jesus. The reason someone dies and they're separated is because they didn't receive the gospel. Therefore, the gospel didn't affect them as the gospel is designed to affect them. So we have to be careful because we can promote a fo- false gospel when we expand the perimeters of the gospel's reach. In other words, when we say that you can be saved and yet cling to a life that you're instructed to abandon, then you run the risk of promoting a false gospel. When the Bible says, hey, here's the line and you need to toe that line. Or when the Bible says, here's what's not okay, but we say, well, I'm going to interpret it the way that I want it to be understood. We have churches all across the Bible Belt that are, that are wearing the cloak of liberalism right now because we take a text and we say, well, hmm, for thousands of years, this has been interpreted this way, and a clear reading of the text says this has been interpreted this way, but love is love, folks. Jesus had a lot to say about love. And so then what we do is we say, okay, well, here's the thing, because I don't want to be exclusive. I don't want to be inclusive to that degree, or I don't want to be exclusive. You know, uh, what, what we're going to do is we're going to say, let's, let's keep the main thing the main thing, and do you love Jesus? And let's call a spade a spade, the LGBTQ movement, the sexual revolution, and all of these things. Image bearers, yes. 
Worthy of dignity and honor, yes. Worthy of love, absolutely. Pursue them, love them, give the gospel, befriend them so that you can give them the gospel, absolutely. May the church never, ever, ever draw the wrong lines in the sand. But may the church never, ever, ever make compromises and sacrifice biblical truth, sacrifice theology on an altar of acceptance, on an altar of, uh, I just don't want the heat, on an altar of, I don't want to lose my job. You see what I'm saying? I was in a conversation with a guy this week who, 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 who something like that come up at a, at a, came up at a very important meeting, and he was the only one to voice his concern about things in a room full of pastors. And he stood up, and he talked for 15 minutes on some of these issues and some of the spinelessness in pastors and some of the actions or stances of churches that are completely contrary to the Bible. Not because there's a hatred for man, but because there's a love for truth. And slowly but surely, there was a ripple effect. One by one, Many of the pastors started coming up saying, I'm so glad you said that. They've been in fear. Fear of saying what the Bible says because there will be heat that, is, that comes upon them. Because they will be pressed. Because they will be scrutinized. Because they will be mocked. Because they might get fired. That's what happens when a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Be careful that your life doesn't misrepresent the pure gospel of Christ. He says you will bear the penalty. And he has strong language for those that do. We'll pick up there next week. We have one final warning to go through and then we'll introduce love and see that contrast and then we'll talk about what it is to truly love your neighbor as yourself. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we worship you. You are a glorious God. You're a glorious King. We thank you, all three persons of the Godhead, for the role, for the function that you have in our lives. God, we thank you for, um, for, 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 uh, for the calling and for the drawing, Lord, for all of these things. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, for your teaching, for your perfections, for your, uh, uh, for your glory, um, for your keeping power. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your obedience to Jesus. We thank, or to God, we thank you, Jesus, for uh, uh, your, 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 your great love for the Father and for Father for your great love for the Son. Father, we thank you, and, and, and Jesus, we thank you, and Holy Spirit, we, we thank you. We thank you for fighting within us and waging war against sin and our flesh. We thank you for helping us understand these things that are way too lofty for us to understand in our own humanity. We, we, we thank you for conviction that you bring in our life, and we pray that you would do it more often because we need it. And Lord, we pray that you would give us perspective, Lord, where we need perspective towards salvation, towards community, towards the body, towards sin, towards all of these things. Lord, we, 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 we say that as John said, anything good that comes, comes from above. 
So God, any of these things that you would choose to do for us, we worship and praise you for it because they are from above and not from us, not from within. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, make us more like Jesus. Create in us clean hearts, renew steadfast spirits in us. Lord, I, I pray that you, would, that you would give us a hatred for sin. Lord, a, a steadfastness when it comes to keeping your word and that you would give us a great and deep abiding love for your law, for those precepts, and may we delight in those things. 